Well, good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me and see me? Good. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious God, be with us as we gather around your word this afternoon. May your spirit speak to us. And as we uh, consider a topic of interpersonal relationships, we pray that you might strengthen our relationships, convict us of areas where we need to improve in this area, and be a source of comfort in the midst of relationships that remain disturbed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a warm good afternoon to you. I'm sorry not to be with you, but I have a, a bad cold and am uh, sneezing and coughing and thought I would spare you the, um, the problem of uh, a cold. It is not COVID, so as far as the test tells me, but um, I um, am recovering and doing fine. You should have a one-page handout in front of you. I have it on my screen. I trust it's on yours. There are two words that summarize the content of our passage today. Reconciliation and forgiveness. And if you remember those two words, I hope they will serve as kind of hangers for you as we go through about uh, 20 chapters in Matthew chapter 18. Relationship and forgiveness. Not in general, but in the church and in the way that we relate one to the other. As you might notice from the outline that I provided, the one-page outline, I think it's sometimes helpful to pose a question and then serve uh, and then uh, deliver the answer. And so the bottom line summary of my message this afternoon asks the question, how and to what extent should we be reconciled to and forgive fellow Christians? How and to what extent should we be reconciled to and forgive fellow Christians? And the answer is that we must be reconciled to one another in love and humility, as though his or her life depended on it, with God's enablement. And we must forgive the other without limit, as though your life depended on it, with God's example and a threat. So that's by way of introduction. Let me just back up and remind us where we are in Matthew's Gospel. For the past two weeks, we have been examining the fourth of five major speeches by Jesus. And this speech is one that has been summarized um, as follows. It is a message to the community of believers. And I want to refer you to page four of your handout for a moment under um, the middle of page four, because there you can see the relationship between what we did last week and what we are doing this week. Middle of page four. Uh, perhaps that's not practical to do on Zoom. Just bear with me. If not, that's fine. Last week, we looked at a dispute about greatness, warnings about stumbling, and it concluded with a parable. And the bottom line was that we need to be humble and regard ourselves as lowly and to look out for even the littlest one in our midst. Our passage today continues with the same theme, basically. It, it, it endeavors to cover two more areas, being reconciled when we have a problem with someone else, and the extent of forgiveness. And so um, our passage begins in verse 15 and goes to verse 35. The linchpin to chapter 18, many people believe, is verse 14. And here's kind of another bottom line summary of Matthew 18, if you're looking for it. 
Jesus says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. My friends, we are important to God. The relationships that we have are important to God. The church is a community of people whose witness bears witness to the reality of Jesus. And so when there's a problem, we need to address it. And when there's need for forgiveness, we need to offer it. So with that said, I want to invite us to look at um, verses 15 to 20 under the theme of reconciliation. And then secondly, we'll look at uh, verses 20, 21 to 35 under the theme of forgiveness. Before I do, I simply want to note that we need to reckon with the problem that we have in our society. And it's this. We underestimate the severity of sin. We underestimate the severity of sin. We Canadians are known for being polite, and uh, we probably err in this more than most people. It's always no problem, no bother, don't worry about it. Uh, it's okay. I remember being startled um, and wakened up to the reality of sin in a fresh way when um, one day I was late for an appointment. I was to meet somebody for coffee, and I was about 10 minutes late, and I said to them, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. And I expected them to say, no big deal, it's not a problem. But they said, I forgive you. And I thought, wow, that's kind of picky. I mean, I was only 10 minutes late. But here was somebody who I think had a more biblical understanding of sin, and that mistakes are real, and that when mistakes are made, they need to be made up for. They need to be acknowledged, and forgiveness is always a helpful thing. We tend to put a lot of things under the carpet. We tend to avoid conflict. But here in verses 15 to 20, Jesus encourages us to take the bull by the horns, as it were, and to confront the brother or sister who has done us wrong. So let me read again from the translation at the head of your uh, notes, uh, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, confront him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you gain your brother. If he refuses to hear you, take with you one or two others in order that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So we're to confront an errant brother or sister. The assumption, of course, is that relationships are important. One of the other assumptions that comes with it, and it's not explicitly outlined in verses 15 to 17, but it is in the context of the chapter as a whole, and it is also in other Jewish literature where similar advice is given by wise prophets, that it be done in love and that it be done out of concern for the other. As I was studying for this uh, sermon this week, I was reminded of two passages that seem to uh, conflict with the advice that we find here. One is, judge not, lest you be judged. And the other one had to do with the, uh, with the, uh, the wheat and the tares. We were told there to let others who are evildoers in our midst coexist with us. So what do we do about those? Well, I think in the case of Matthew chapter 7, where it says, judge not, lest you be judged, 
that the idea there is that I am pridefully and haughtily finding a reason to look down on another person at their expense. I'm being nitpicky. I'm thinking of myself as superior. I'm trying to raise myself up by lowering the other person down. And of course, that spirit is contrary to the teaching of Jesus and is contrary to what we found already in chapter 18, where our approach is to be that of a little child admonishing another. We are to be lowly and humble. We're to be interested in the good of the other with a view to winning them back. You'll notice in verse uh, 15, it says, it's if he listens to you, you gain your brother. This isn't so much the restoration of a relationship as it is bringing your brother or your sister back into the flock. It has to do with their spiritual well-being. So we are to make judgments. I mean, think about it. Otherwise, we would have convicted pedophiles uh, as, super, as Sunday school superintendents and that sort of thing. So we are to judge, but we're to do it with humility. We're to do it uh, with um, lack of self-righteousness with the good of the other and the good of the church in mind. And of course, the other passage had to do with the wheat and the tares. And I'm convinced that those earlier passages in Matthew, as I said once before, pertain not to people within the church, to fellow believers, but to the conflict that arose in the first century between Jews who were followers of Christ and other Jews who were not yet followers of Christ. And the idea there is that we were to let the Jewish non-Messiah affirmers um, alone, and not to uh, not to take odds with them or to pick a fight with them. But within the context of the church, relationships are important. The sinner needs to be confronted in humility, and it's our job to do that. Another underlying assumption of the passage is that seeds of sin planted at an individual level can affect the whole. Jesus wouldn't be telling us to be reconciled with our brother and our sister if it didn't have a spillover effect in terms of our relationships within the church as a whole. And I think that's very true. Some churches um, have a lot of uh, things under the carpet. Uh, most churches probably do. But the healthiest church is one where people are committed to going to the other in humility and in love and saying, let's work this out for your sake, for mine, for the sake of the kingdom of God, and for the upbuilding of the church. So we are to confront the other person with a view to reconciliation. And I was impressed as I looked at verses 15 to 17 at the number of times one is to go at it. One goes at it personally and privately for the sake of the other person's uh, lack of embarrassment, dignity, I presume. And if he refuses to do that, if he refuses to listen, you come at it again with a few others. And if he refuses still, you come at it again with the church. And only then do you wash your hands and say, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a certain irony, I think, in verse 17, because Jesus would have known that everyone regarded Gentiles and tax collectors as outcasts and write-offs. But we know from the teaching of Jesus that the Gentile and the tax collector we're not ultimately write-offs for Jesus. And this introduces us to the uh, theme of the um, underlying, of the two underlying assurances that come with reconciliation. Reconciliation is hard. Church discipline is hard. And so in verses 18 to 20, Jesus gives us two assurances, as if to say, folks, it's okay. 
I am with you. And he reminds us of what he did in chapter 16, verse 19, where he said something similarly. In truth, I say that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that's the first assurance. Let's stop there and look at those words again, because we've read them before and struggled with them. Another way in which this could be translated is to say, in truth, I say that whatever you will have bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you will have loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that's an important distinction, because in one case, it's as though our decisions affect what goes on in heaven. And in the other case, it's as though our decisions are simply an affirmation of a decision that's already been made in heaven. And I'd like to tell you that I like to prefer the one where heaven gets the head start. But Jesus in verse 19, with his second assurance, poses problems to that view. Because it is as though Jesus is saying and underscoring the importance of us making the decisions which then are confirmed in heaven. Because he says in verse 19, again, in truth, I say to you all, if there be two, if there be two who concur on earth concerning anything about which they may ask, it shall be done for them from my Father who is in the heavens. For where two or three are assembled in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the second assurance seems to indicate that in matters of church discipline, when believers gather together in the name of Jesus and discern how best to um, admonish a brother or sister, that that has an effect on what's going on in heaven. And it makes us worry, I think, about too much power being given to St. Peter as the Pope, uh, or as the, uh, the one who is regarded to be the fountainhead of the Pope's authority. But it's real, and it's here. And I don't like it particularly, but I'm not here to tell you what I like. I'm here to tell you what the Word of God says. Now, that said, I do want to draw attention to some aids to understanding of this passage. Because as we know from verse 20, we've often taken it glibly as though it's kind of a carte blanche promise for where two or three are assembled in my name, there I am in their midst. The context is quite specific. And the context has to do with people in the church working to restore broken relationships within the community. And I want to suggest that that's the business of heaven. The topic of uh, that is the focal point of the context here is one that is very much the business of heaven. In other words, if we were to extrapolate from the context that of bringing others into a closer relationship with God through humble admonishment, we might begin to think that um, if I want to say, may the Toronto Argonauts win the Grey Cup, and I get two or three of my buddies together, that they will win the Grey Cup. But of course, the folks in Calgary might be rooting for the Stampeders. And so there's an inevitable kind of a conflict that arises here, which means that the passage must be understood in its context. And the context has to do with people seeking the will of God within the kingdom of God in the context of the church. And the bottom line where the authority lies, I think you would agree, is at the end of verse 20, when Jesus says, there I am in their midst. It's the presence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that is the, uh, the glue that holds this all together and that forms a bridge, as it were, between heaven and earth. So it's not carte blanche, carte blanche, although many things do apply in the broader context. But the context is that 
of restoring others to their faith, and it isn't to be widely uh, used in other contexts. With that said, let's move now to the second theme, and that is forgiveness. Along comes Peter. We've seen Peter many times, and this time it seems as though Peter thinks he's probably got it right. You see, in Jewish tradition, based upon the book of Amos, where it talks about for three transgressions, yea, four, um, God will decide to do something or not. There was a Jewish tradition that you should forgive your brother up to four times. And so Peter's thinking, wow, Jesus is perfect. I bet you that I'm going to uh, be able to impress Jesus. I'm learning a lot. And so he has. And so he says in verse 21, then approaching Peter, then approaching Peter said to him, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Or perhaps your translation says 70 times seven times. The Greek word is the same in both cases. In any case, Peter goes to the max, the perfect number seven, and Jesus responds to him with what seems preposterous. I mean, forgiving your brother or sister seven times and then having them mess up again is a pretty high standard. But Jesus raises it. And as he does so, there's the recollection of Genesis chapter 4, where there was a pattern of vengeance that Lamech vowed himself to. And he vowed himself to uh, avenge seven times beyond that, which was originally done in the case of Cain. And so just as there's the seven-fold pledge to greater vengeance, which causes a lot of trouble in the world, so here there's at least a seven-fold pledge to initiate forgiveness of the other in the case of the kingdom of Jesus. Notice, too, that the tone is personal. Peter says, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me? You see, we need to be thinking not in terms of the context of, oh, nice that Christians can forgive each other, but it's personal here. It's one-on-one, -on -one, and it's the same in verse 15 to 17. We are to think of that individual in our midst with whom we have a conflict. It's one-on-one, -on -one, and it's definitely personal. I was reminded of that Schultz cartoon where I think it was Charlie Brown who said, uh, or maybe it's one of the other Schultz characters, um, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Uh, we can generalize about people, but when it comes to the specifics and the individual, then we have a greater problem. And so in light of that, Jesus says and gives a parable on forgiveness. So he begins in verse 23, on this account. In other words, Peter, let me tell you why you should forgive somebody up to 77 times. And he tells the story of a king who had two servants. Now, these servants were probably something like civil servants in a fairly high-level administration. So as chapter 18 began with the little person, here we're dealing with issues that relate to people with relatively more power, perhaps people of higher status. And so the king comes and he wants to settle accounts with uh, his servants. And in verse 24, as he began to settle, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. We don't know what 10,000 talents are. Well, we do. But because it's not common parlance, let me just elaborate. This is billions of dollars. 
this is five times more than the tax revenue of Galilee and Perea, two provinces in Palestine in the year 4 BC. We're talking about the gross national product. Um, it's billions of dollars. And so this fellow falls to his knees in verse 25, uh, not having the means to repay. Uh, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. In verse 25, he gets the penalty. You can't repay, so we're going to have to sell you, your family, uh, so that payment can be made. The righteous king is just, and this is perfectly keeping with what is normal. And then in verse 26, the servant pleads and says, be patient with me, and I shall pay you back everything. Verse 27, it's one of my favorite verses. Being compassionate, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. A massive debt, instantly forgiven. But now comes the punchline, like some of these stories have. But no sooner had the servant left than he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now oh, that's maybe three months' wages. It is, I think, one six hundred thousandth of the amount that he himself was forgiven. And what does he do? He put a chokehold on him, saying, Pay me back what you owe. And the fellow servant, falling on his knees, said exactly the same thing that the first servant said before the king. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But the servant, who had been forgiven much, was unwilling. And he went and threw him into prison until he paid back what he was owed. Well, as the story continues, we know that other people saw it and brought the complaint to the king and said, wow, this is a little odd. The man you forgave so much isn't uh, got the same spirit in him. And the punchlines come in verse 30, uh, verse 33, uh, and then uh, also in 35. Was it not also incumbent upon you to show mercy to your fellow servant in the same way that I even showed you mercy? Being angry then, his Lord gave him over to torturous jailers until he should repay all that was owed. And then here our Lord ends with a warning. Such is what my heavenly Father will do to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. My friends, the call to forgiveness is limitless. And Jesus' justification is not based upon the pettiness of uh, politics and relationships between two people who owes what. But the standard is the extent to which God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. We humans have committed an unlimited offense against a perfect and holy eternal God. And it's an incalculable debt that we owe. That is to be the basis and the benchmark for the extent to which we are to forgive others in the family of faith. My friends, as I, as I come to the uh, conclusion, I want to um, address a problem that comes up. Is our forgiveness of others conditional upon their confession and repentance? In other words, many Christians, perhaps most Christians, believe that you are not um, obligated or maybe even permitted to forgive another person unless they confess and repent. And so there's a bit of a debate that goes on about whether uh, you can forgive without um, them apologizing and confessing. 
There's more in the notes on this. I've written quite a bit because I think it's important and helpful. I refer you to the notes, but let me just say at the bottom line that there is debate about this. But I think in light of 18, 21 to 35, Jesus is switching the focus to the magnitude of God's forgiveness and putting that before us as the benchmark. And even if we are not to technically show forgiveness to someone who's unrepentant, our attitude towards them is to be exactly the same as if we had forgiven them. So the difference is more theological and semantic. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to go the extra mile in concern for those who oppress us and persecute us and so on. So regardless of that particular issue, we are to act as though we have forgiven. And I believe, in light of what I studied this week, that in the case of human-to-human -human forgiveness, that uh, confession and repentance is not a criterion, and that given the extent to which we've been forgiven, we are to forgive others. Let me end now on uh, two footnotes. One is coping with the abiding effects of sin neither confessed nor apologized for. Some of us are dealing with a huge burden. Someone has harmed us, perhaps someone who has now died, and there's no way of seeking and obtaining reconciliation because the person is gone. There's no way that they're going to confess and apologize because they have died. And so the burden is heavy. And here, uh, the, the problem is, is genuinely difficult. Mm -hmm. But we are to cast our cares upon God and give them to him, knowing that in the end, justice will be done. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The second footnote takes us back to the private admonition in verse 15 to 17. Scott McKnight, in his book called A Church Called Tove, has given instance of a misuse of this passage, where there was, um, uh, in some cases, a female parishioner who had been um, harassed or worse, abused by someone in power. And that female parishioner was advised to go one-on-one -on -one with that other person. Well, I don't think that applies in this case. Jesus makes it perfectly clear that here it's brother to brother. In other words, where there's a power differential, that advice is not particularly cogent. And there's a, a little bit more in the notes about it. In conclusion, let me take you to that burden that you might be carrying of uh, a harm that hasn't been dealt with. Uh, on an interpersonal level. At the end of the Kenyan rite in the Anglican church, the communion rite, there is a, a saying, and it goes like this. And I want you to, uh, I want you to, to, uh, to say it with me once I announce it. The person says, the officiant says, all of our problems, and then the response is, we send to the cross. All of our difficulties, the response is, we send to the cross. All of the works of the devil, the response is, we send to the cross. And then finally, all of our hopes, we set on the risen Christ. Perhaps this afternoon, as you struggle with offense that uh, is still residual and messy in your life, I invite you to respond as I say, all of our problems, we send to the cross. All of our difficulties, we send to the cross. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. 
all of our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Amen.